yes we are we're live okay all right welcome to the show um my brother it's good to have you here thank you for coming on today um you're welcome <laughs> so i appreciate it <laughs> my, my pleasure my pleasure it's good to have you here um when the team reached out to me and said that you um, you sent an email asking to be on the show. I was like, yeah, we need to get him on. Let's let's make it happen. So I'm, I'm happy that we're able to do this today. I'm happy that we're able to do this today. All right. Um, so I want us to kick off the episode today with your origin story. So how would you describe you from, you know, being a young person to growing up till now till this position where you're currently in China doing doing a lot of things around here. So how would you describe your origin story to sort of explain who you are as JP? Um, uh, thank you for asking me. Uh, my origin story is quite um, up and down, but up, if I have to say it. Um, I think I'm um, to first phrase it about 11 years ago because most of the things that i'm interested in and do start from i think yeah 2010 12 years ago 2010 in about june i think i was just um this little boy who had a radio in my father's house and i got tired of listening to music because i found it okay exciting when i got tired of it so Scrolling on the dial, I landed on the BBC World Service. Um, the BBC World Service, the BBC Radio. And from that moment, I got hooked. Because it's not, it wasn't more about the news they were showing. It was about the documentaries they were showing. And as a 12-year-old boy, I think that that kind of opened my eyes. Because every time there was a documentary, I would get an atlas and see which part of the world they're talking to. So probably by, by maybe when I was like 14, 15, I probably knew most capitals in the world. And I had that global insight, especially about Africa where I was, from just an international radio station. And... Going forward, as maybe I progress through high school, and that I I grew more interested in foreign foreign events, what was happening around, what was what was affecting people maybe in Europe or America, and and when I realized that when I came to China, it it helped me relate with people from other countries because you tell. Maybe you meet someone from um, maybe from Russia or maybe someone from the States and you tell them that, oh, this happened. Like, for instance, when I came here initially in 2018 and I had a friend of mine from Zimbabwe, I told them, how is President Munanagwa? And I was like, how do you know Munanagwa? Yeah. So it kind of gave me that, that advantage relating with people on a broader scale because you kind of knew their country. And... Human human psychology comes in this way that you you tend to like the people who know something about you. You have that closeness is easier. So my origin started there. My origin in terms of 
learning about foreign policy and foreign relations started from just that single moment I dealt on the BBC back then. So as I continued in my, um, after high school, after my national exams, this was 2018, and I was home awaiting university. Uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, my sister was um, already in China, so it was kind of easier for me to apply and probably get a placement in China. But I also must admit, China wasn't my first option. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so you have this case of okay, she's already there, you just go there, but then you head you're like maybe I want it might I want it maybe go to South Africa, maybe to UK, what what but then you know, I guess there's always there's every cloud has a safe silver lining. So there I was in my vacation having applying to come to China and my thoughts on China before I came were very primitive, to be precise, because we in, in my country, we see China in three aspects. We see China as that country that brings in, investors and stuff, but many of the goods are not to date. Um, not, not to date, they're not of the standard. So like as if Africa is a dumping ground of fake goods, you probably have this common type uh, common toys or we are just made of plastic and you're like made from china like can't an african do that but you know that's a perception people grow up in and then the second perception is of these guys are mainly um they they eat rare foods that we africans we find out of the world the the reptiles the seafood the you know and you're like ah you know yeah, <laughs> you kind of get that narrative. So, and then, and then the third narrative is most people see the Chinese in my country, not most, some, as a new wave of, 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 of how do I say it? I wouldn't say colonizers, I would say new ways of foreign domination. You get that okay, now these guys are coming back to, to Africa, the way the the whites came a hundred years before to come and take over us and take over what what, so you have those three biases about China that you're coming to. So that was the state at which I was coming to China way back in 2018, and so the 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 what i'm currently doing is i'm i'm doing i'm finishing an undergraduate course in computer software engineering here in china so the 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 basics of cause sorry most again the the people in my country uganda i'm from uganda east africa so most of them China is good for mainly business and technology because um, the, the tech side, they are accustomed to Chinese companies such as Transon Holdings. You know, Transon Holdings is the company with Techno, ITEL, and Infinix, that brand company. And then you have Huawei, and then probably you have Stackheims, and then probably you have Hisense, you know. So they are exposed to the Chinese tech, which is more standard than 
the usual goods that we see and you're like, okay, this is fake. So, and then business. So like you are enticed to go and study that IT to get that, to get that technology part of it from them, from China, because if, if it's not America, Europe, it's Asia. It's, and if it's Asia, if it's not South Korea and Japan, it's China. So that, that was like the model of encouragement for me to come here and pursue the technological side in China. But also on the technical side, I didn't know much. I just knew that, okay, this company is Chinese. Huawei is Chinese. You know, techno is Chinese. I didn't really know much. I started knowing much about cities like Shenzhen, um, cities like Shenzhen that this is like the Chinese Silicon Valley, the one that has companies such as Tencent, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, Beidou, you know, all best there. Then you have Xiaomi in Beijing. You know, I started getting to know about Chinese tech when I was in China, not when I was back home. I was just like a headless chicken going for you know, for something that <laughs> was I was heading to. So so those were the dynamics. Those are the dynamics. I was this guy who was kind of vast with international policy because of the the news and the filtering I was used to, accustomed to. And I was this guy who was chasing the t- technological dream from China. And I remember I remember like four days before I came to China, I was seated in my dad's car and there was a Focac summit happening in Beijing 2018. And I, there was President Paul Kagame, the one of Rwanda, is one of my icons. And he was saying, he was giving this speech of saying that China-Africa relations are building and Africa should take keen interest in it. And I was seated in my dad's car and I was like, wow, so I'm heading to a place where, you know, African connectivity is, is reaching. So I would say so. So that's kind of like my origin story and how, and how I left Africa some years back to reach where I was. Um, then entering China. Entering China, so now I'm in the place, you're new, you don't know the language, the weather, the winter is crazy, um, the food is, you know, terrible, you just have to adapt, um, you know. You, you mean so, different, not terrible, it's different. Oh, it's different, it's different, yeah. But obviously for a digestive system, it's terrible, because you get sick, you you, you know, Ah, <laughs> you need like four meals to get accustomed to it. Uh, so then I reach, but I think my 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 awakening in terms of in terms of being how do I say it African centered was the environment I was in because in my course we were twenty two. 22 with only two Africans. I and my friend is from Ghana. So we were two Africans and the rest were from one country, Bangladesh, which is Asian. And the tutor is teaching you is also Asian. So 
you feel isolated. You know, you feel isolated because the class environment is environment you go to every week, week in, week out. So you enter, you just see something foreign. They have their languages. Their, their, their religion was not Christianity, which I belong to and my colleague belongs to. And they had this cardio relationship with the teacher that we as we kind of felt shy having with. And at the back of your head, you, you, you kind of feel that, I wouldn't say inferiority complex, but this thing of wanting to, to give a voice to yourself. Because everything you do, you're representing not your home, you're representing your country, you're representing your continent. So just two people are representing 1.4 billion people on the continent in a class, miles away from Africa. So it's, it's in that surrounding that you become aware of your heritage, of your, I wouldn't say of your Pan-Africanism, but it's where you start now identifying yourself as African, more than just Ugandan or Ghanaian or Tanzanian or South African. You present yourself as African from there because now you're representing a full continent. Your ideals, your your academic work, your wealth talk, your wealth interacting. Because people won't see you as okay, they'll see you as a Ugandan when they interact with you, but at first sight, they'll interact with you as the un African. So you are more like an ambassador for the continent. You get so that that's where I think I started having that pan-African feeling and urge to now, okay. This is Africa where I come from. This is Uganda where I come from. So <clears throat> it was during that period of of entering and meeting people from different walks of of life. And and I must say it was it was made easy because there were other Africans there. Um the school was quite helping with the orientation and the process and so there was no major hurdle. Everything was Okay, okay, challenges here and there, but it was smooth and okay. And so as we continue 2019, there is a um, culture exhibition. Everyone is happy to showcase their country. And yeah, everything is okay. You get interact from people from other parts of the world, from other parts of... So you have this strong international feeling. You know, you feel a sense of community. And it's amazing. I would say it's very amazing. Then COVID comes. Now, I usually tell people that COVID is what literally changed me, to to be precise. Because when COVID came, most of my colleagues went back home. Um, they, my other classmates, except my fellow African classmate, my brother, stayed. Our colleagues from from Bangladesh, left and resorted to this online studying format, you know. But, you know, as COVID was spreading and China became the ground zero for the pandemic, there was a lot of fake news rhetoric pumped up by very many organizations, I think even pumped up by the Trump administration at that time. And you being in China, you, you kind of became caught in the middle because you saw what was happening with your eyes and when you go pick up your phone and see what's on Twitter, it's completely 
do you like okay, what's happening here? Yeah, there was a lot of hysteria and uh, medical advice was thrown away, but conspiracy theories were popped up. It was crazy, and also because you're there, because during that time, um, I was a leader at um, the Uganda Students Association in China, so because of because of issues regarding um, repatriation of students who were stuck in Wuhan, where they were urging our government to to repatriate them. But I think because of kind of I can't say cost, maybe it was more of a diplomatic agreement. Maybe just keep the students there, show that we're standing with China, Jongo Jayo, we're standing with China, just keep them there and just just send them relief money. So it kind of looked a cake if if the leader went back home. So we stayed. We are like, okay, let's just stay here and just fight the virus here. So during that time we 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 stayed there. So um so you're hearing messages from people back home like Jeffy, what's happening? Um what's happening there? Is it true? Is it this? So that's when I get inspired to start up a blog and I'm like, let me write. I don't care how many people read it, but let me just write what's happening. And at least I share from, from my experience, from my experience. So I write an article about the, um, the COVID issue that was happening in my city, in my locality around me how they locked down the school, what we're doing online classes, how there was um, that COVID scanning. Because by that time, I think no other country had introduced it. This was like, I think, March 2020. It was already mainstream in China. So it's like just new technology then. And, you know, the testing. And they're trying to change the narrative of the fake news. To try to give people like the real thing, like okay, I'm in here, I'm in the hot, I'm in the hot zone. This is what's happening. Either accept it or not, but at least I've showed you what's happening. So in the in the writing, I posted it on Twitter. So on Twitter, um, I get to I'm lucky enough that maybe one of the um, news platforms gets gets to see my work back home. It's not an online news platform, you see my work. And then they contact me and be like, tell us your story, tell us what's happening. And I share with them my work and they publish my work. So I was elated. And then again, I was scrolling to social media and I see this, this competition by our embassy. Our embassy, the Chinese embassy in Uganda is like, we're having this competition where you write about your China story and then when you win that, you get a mobile phone and blah, blah, blah. So I'm kind of enticed to go for it. And I write and I win. But the story, the story which I'm using is the same COVID story of what happened in my city. And I just add a little few details and I give it to that mainstream newspaper and... I win. I was very happy. So I, I was like, okay, now I know I can write. I know that people people like my my point of view. 
let me start now making, let me start adding articles to my blog. Can I say my breakthrough moment came, I think, late 2020? There is this US-China competition that's happening. And in there, they are like, we want two students. It was by Georgetown University in America. They are like, we want, we want two students who, who want to talk about um, improving relations between US and China. Two from America, two from China. So I'm like, and they're like, we're giving a prize of $2,000. I'm like, this looks to be too good to be true. So I check the link. I see it's genuine. I'm like, okay, let me use my insight that I have of international relations and now link up with two people. Hopefully God will give me a good team. So I sit there, I said my, I put my details there and I get two people from Georgetown. Who join, who join with me and we make a group of four because each group had to have four. Two students in China, two who are best in America. So we we sit down and we're like, US-China relations, how can we solve them? So we, we, we zero it down to this, what we call the sportsmanship approach, where we make it like a win-win between US and China, where we, they, we, they cooperate on, they should cooperate maybe on issues of mutual interest. So, so so that was the focus of our paper. We submit, I win again. Very happy. So, so you, you know, got so, that money, just to be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I got the money. <laughs> I got the money. Uh, so, you know, so at that stage where your skies rise, you know, you feel like, okay, now I think I haven't reached, but I think I've reached it there. And, you know, when you reach there, you kind of get noticed. And the thing is, when the thing the, the thing is, when you reach there, one advice I would give is that you shouldn't be complacent. Every opportunity that comes, try to give it your best shot. Because even if it doesn't work out, you learn from it. We con- I continue engaging 2021, keep on writing my articles, and then get invited by Think Tank back home. A friend of mine who again saw my articles online, I was like, hey, JP, I think I want to join you in my think tank. First, as an editor, we are writing about foreign policy. If I see you're good enough, you become a research fellow. And then I, <clears throat> I write an article with him, co-authored, about Russia's influence in Africa. It's good. And he's like, okay, now I want you to become a research fellow writing about China. So currently, that's where I am. I'm working with them while we're just writing articles, um, China, Africa, China and its role in the world, China and sport. And that was the China part. But as I said, in here, there was that thing of being an African because you feel, I think the thing with, with as I said, <clears throat> distance makes the heart founder. When you haven't gone back home in over a thousand days you miss home but you can't say like i'm going home because of the technicality that will come with it and you feel you have to present your your home your continent to the people around because most chinese think china is one continent and most africans maybe don't know what really means to be african maybe their mindset from 
we wouldn't blame them from the education system back home. Lucky enough, I had um, my father was um was someone who was very passionate about history and African tradition, and so was my grandfather. So I grew up with him telling me about not only the cultures and traditions of my my tribe or my or my place, but also of other African places because he was a retired journalist and also a retired government official. So he had this insight of people far away as in Kurum of Ghana or maybe people as near as Tanzania. So he would tell you the stories of these African men, Sankara of Burkina Faso. And you'd sit there and you'd be so inspired by what you know what these people are doing. And you're like, this is Africa I want because in those stories your 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 main learning about self an, an African leader who's for the people, who wants for the people, who believes in self-reliance, wants his country to be self-reliant, not wasting on donor aid and what. An African an African leader who believes in African tradition and norms and believes that this is with just a few adjustments, this is what will take us ahead. So those stories inspired, you know, from a young age would inspire you. And and you'd feel bad when you go to school, you know, you go to school and these African leaders who were doing um, resistance against the colonialists, you know, the colonialists, and they were having wars in different African locations. In maybe you talk about Kavalega in Uganda, maybe you talk about um, the, the Mau Mau's in Kenya. They are portrayed as villains. I don't know about now because the portrayed as these guys were, were just not liking the Europeans or fighting and causing chaos and tension. And you feel bad because these guys are fighting an invasion of their land. And and we are when we're being given the Western narrative that these people are barbaric. They were they were just not, you know. And yet what should be portrayed is um a a narrative of resistance or a narrative of African strength. You know, I do not see stories such as those of Emperor Menelik the Second of Ethiopia who defeated the the Italians in 1896 being so advocated in most history books in Africa. But his story can inspire a whole generation of Africans. So when you're when you're so much accustomed to such literature and stories and your and your way from from your from your home miles away, you feel like it's your need also to share about the real African story with other Africans and with other people around. And that and that led to my path of also being more of writing about the African narrative, African story, making my my belief be more African-centered rather than maybe globally trying to focus my belief to, to Africa. Because I believe for long, we, we haven't been actually represented so much. And this is our time because our literacy rate on the continent is high. We're increasing more people are going to school. And we are Africans having access to technology. So it is our time to also share what we truly, truly want rather than all our cultures just going extinct and we just 
We're just the part of the world that's just absorbing cultures from other parts of the world, but not sharing ours. So great, great. Wow. Yeah, you you've you've touched on a lot of very critical points and it's just I mean it's it's very interested. Um but bringing it back to what we the concept of the African narrative, because I remember you mentioned one thing before, which is that there's also a narrative that, you know, for example, people in your country have had considering China before you came here. You mentioned three things that you thought was very reminiscent of the Chinese people and the Chinese economy. Um, I mean, do you think that after all this time that you've been here now, um, one would assume that now you know better um, than before you got here about the Chinese culture, about the Chinese people, um, the Chinese narrative in general. So bringing that back to the concept of the African narrative, right? What exactly is the true African narrative and why is it important to share that to the world? Yeah, that's a nice question. I think I've always wanted to answer this question whenever I'm asked. <laughs> Thank you for asking it. The true African narrative, as I try to try to picture it in someone's mind, is a man in a rural part of Africa, can his story be accessed by everyone in the world? Because most of the stories about people in other parts of the world, maybe in Europe, or in America, we get access to them, but they don't have access to our stories. So the true African narrative is simply put as what is really happening in Africa in an unbiased but truthful way. That's what I can say, in an unbiased and truthful way. What is really happening on the continent? Whether it's bad or good, we don't care, but this is what's really happening in our continent, truthfully and honestly. We want, to, we want to share African stories the way they should be shared. Right now, most news companies, be it CNN, BBC, those are foreign-based foreign based, um, organizations that they would say they have a branch, an African branch. But remember that these companies are answerable to those major shareholders, and those shareholders, there's no African on their board. So why is it important to have the true African narrative is to create a generation of Africans who can be inspired by the works of fellow Africans to move the continent forward. Because we are the youngest continent demographically in the world. So we can't have a generation that doesn't know the heritage and, the, and not, in, in, <clears throat> not engulfed by the pride of we as we. So that's what we are trying to portray. And it's not like we are, we are giving only positive stories. No, you should give, give the negative because from the negative that you can derive the positive. You find that now China is trying to tell their story to the world. Mm. Um, they're not there yet. There's still a lot yeah, of work, yeah, honestly, that China has to do to be able to better represent itself on a global scale. And I will field that question to you as well. So, yes, we already know that there's the problem of underrepresentation or misrepresentation of the African narrative all across the world. Um, just the same way, you know, you guys had misrepresentation of China in your country. Mm. The same thing is here as well. You find a lot of Chinese people do know nothing 
about the continent of Africa. They think Africa is just one country. They think that, you know, all everybody who comes from there, they're poor, they don't have mm -hmm. food and things like this. And that's just because the story has not been told in a good way. Now, the question is, how can we change that? How can we make it better? How can we tell the African stories in a better way? I think um, telling the African story in a better way is just by increasing its its visibility across the world, across global platforms, because the stories are there. The, the narrative's already there, be it historical, be it present. The narrative's already there. And that's where technology comes in, because we have the best chance, we have the best chance of platforms and people who we have a, a growing tech-savvy generation who wants to own up to this, they can take it places. So that's how I believe it can go and can be true. And that's going to bring me back into the, the second thing that I want to talk to you about, which is technology and the continent of Africa. So what type of technology exactly, in your opinion, do you think we need to develop the continent? Um, I think probably all types of technology, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> All types of technology, but um, the one for which I have a greater insight too would be the um, the digital. Um, when I was um, my last trip back home, uh, twenty nineteen, I had an engagement with fellow youth back at a Google Hub in Kampala, and we were about like fifty, fifty in there, and you'll see that these were really enthusiastic, um, tech savvy youth. Sitting down, dusk to dawn, coding, planning out how to create solutions for existing using applications or apps. And that was amazing to me because we are not, you know, from, from unless you're in there, you would not think that this is happening. You know, and most of the, 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 the applications made by, um, the local companies in there are made by these guys. It shows you how the African digital economy is increasing. You have companies such as Flutterway, you know, you don't need, if you know it, it's a unicorn based in Nigeria. You know, such, such, such I think is Africa's way of really harnessing technology. The way China did with opening companies like Tencent, opening companies like Beidou, they literally have everything the western world has and I'm, I'm and i'm of this belief that we africans we have the the brains and the technicalities to do it we just need government support we need funding and and that's all the first electric african car it was made in uganda now i'm seeing their cars in there's one electric car that was made by a tanzanian there's another which is based by Ghanaian. So you have people who are ingenuity, people who are thinking with their mind, with their resources, and they're trying to create solutions for the world using technology. Great, great. I, I definitely agree with you that we do need a lot of um, innovation, you know, around the continent to be able to drive the growth that we want to drive. Um, but in a way, there might, and I use the word might because once again, it's not factual, but the concept of technology and culture, 
is there going to be a compromise between this is where we want to be, but the elements of this part of our culture does not necessarily align with this part of the technology. So that battle of technology and culture, you know, is it change or is there going to be a compromise? What do you think? I think there has to be a compromise because <laughs> I've, been, I, I've, I've been in situations, not in situations, I've heard of situations where there is a specific group of people that are so anti-technology because of culture or religious beliefs on the continent. And yeah, it's a big, big hurdle. But moving forward in the world where the world is moving, we don't want to leave people behind because of their beliefs. But again, you can't neglect them because that's their culture, that's their belief. So I think it has to be more of a compromise. I think it comes back to the stakeholders and the government that we, the youth who are driving up this digital migration and revolution, to reach out to them and tell them the good, but also not to dictate to, not dictate to them what we want, but also listen them out. And then we can create platforms that kind of integrate them. So I think it will just be more of a compromise. Not a strict change. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I yeah. do you you I think you, you you're spot on, on that. In my opinion yeah. as well, I feel like yeah. there comes a time when technology and culture, there's that overlap yeah. and one has to make a compromise. And I'll use China for example. China's new uh, you know, climate change policy and things like that. The part of the culture that was compromised on for example would be during the spring festival where people could use fireworks for example yeah you know but because of the new policy of trying to reduce carbon emission and things like that mm -hmm. that part of the culture is almost being done away with now some yeah. people still do it in the countryside but in a city you're not allowed yeah, not to allowed. use fireworks and things like that because it's considered harmful for the environment so hopefully we will be able to get to a point and a position where um you know technology and the culture comes together in a good in a very good way um so one last thing that i also want to talk to you about is youth empowerment um youth empowerment what um because when i hear those things it means mm. a lot of things in different yeah yeah true right true. so um, let's say in Uganda, for example, what does it mean to an average person or to an average leader when they hear the word youth empowerment? What are they thinking? Talk me through that. Okay, youth empowerment uh, in the Ghanaian context. It's more like just giving the youth the, um, the resources and, and the drive. How do I say it? It's telling the youth that you can do this by supporting their initiatives, supporting their dreams, supporting their cause, and also providing them with a platform to, to how do I say, to better themselves and also better society. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I feel yeah. like you're hiding from my question. So what I mean is <laughs> there is the concept of what it is and what yeah. it should be. And I'll yeah. give you a good example is yeah. in some states in Nigeria, mm -hmm. when some of the local politicians come up with um, initiatives of youth empowerment, mm. 
the strategic implication of those initiatives are not made to empower the youth because it doesn't actually do anything for them. For example, they give them bags of food and call that youth empowerment. No. What happens when the food is finished? Yeah, true. They go yeah, back true. to being poor. So yeah, there yeah. is the state of what it is, which is this is actually what they do. Mm. And there's also the ideal state of what it should be. What is the current state of that in you? Like, is that similar to, mm. for example, the example that I gave you in Nigeria, where they give them this very intangible items and call that youth empowerment? Yeah. <laughs> I think... Um, the, what what the other refers is probably my personal thought mm. and what I really want it to be. Um, the, the the example of Nigeria is probably an African problem. I see it everywhere. It's very, <laughs> very common. <laughs> it's very, very common, especially during the um the, the 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 times of politics and politicians and you know, times of increasing your PR and leverage in society. So yeah, right now that's that's the menace. But but as I said, proper youth empowerment should be skilling the youth through effective education. I believe it starts with education because education, you're not only impacting the brain, but you're impacting the hands. So if you can tell someone that you can do something with your hands coupled with your brain, even if they drop out, someone can do manual, can do carpentry, can make something out of it. Someone can do, you know, welding, can do something. Someone can do agriculture, which is prevalent on the on the African continent. You know, if someone is goes further in education, someone can do IT and create more jobs for others. So I believe it starts with education, it also starts with proper government legislation and you know stuff like that. But the example of where it's just the example we gave in Nigeria, it's very common and that's the sickening part of it. I it's common on the continent, I can't deny. Great, yeah. great. I mean hopefully we'll get to a point where yeah um things change and which is why it's critical that we have this type of conversations yeah, yeah the more young people were able to get on board the more we start to try to make change and you know bring people to a conscious state of mind where we want to take action we want to change the continent we want to change our countries and make sure that we're represented very well and i'll ask you one last question before i let you go um, what would you say has been the major challenge to the African narrative in China so far, in your experience? The African narrative in China, to me, it's a nice question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice, hard question. Yeah, it's a nice, hard question. You know, many answers, but I'm trying to zero get to one. Ah, the problem first is maybe the African narrative in China is one. Okay, no, let me let me answer this question. For one, Chinese are eager to learn about Africa. That's one thing you should appreciate them for. They want to learn more about Africa because I think they may be accustomed to this, you know, old narrative about us. Or if if they not have, they have limited information about it. So they want to learn more about it. Um, the issue with African narrative accessing China is that it's not so much widely accessible here. And if it's accessible, it probably has to be written in Chinese text. And not so many youth who want to share the, the, um, the African narrative are so conversant with Mandarin. That would be one big problem. 
But if they could sort out the language thing, it would be highly accessible. But also, that's not an excuse. The, the 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 second one that I really want to 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 say is that for my staying here, I haven't met so many Africans who are willing to own up to to changing the African narrative in China. So for me, that's my number one problem. There are few African people that I've met. I haven't said there in the world, but they have met who are willing to share Africa, the real African narrative or take up this plight to share it with other communities, not only with fellow Africans, but it's also with the Chinese. So I think to me that's a, a big problem because it leaves it leaves the burden on a few and and leaves others that just be like bystanders, just people to just watch and maybe ap- appreciate or criticize. And you know, and yet it should be a collective action. If you want to change a specific state of mind, it should be a collective action, not not um, a one man's army or one man's force. So I think that's the big solution. That's the no, that's the big problem to the African narrative. Wow. I mean, thank you very much, man, for the time that you've spent sharing your insights with us. It's really, really appreciated. Once again, I want to say thank you for reaching out to us to come on the show. Um, you've shared some really, really great insights, um, especially around the work that you're doing. And I really hope that you continue to try to educate more people about the continent of Africa, about the true story of Africa, and not just the stereotypes that has been propagated for years and years. And hopefully in the near future, you know, we can all look back on this moment and say, yeah, we actually, we did this. We did this. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Once again, thank you for coming. So if people wanted to find you online, where can people find you and your works? What social media platforms do you frequently use? Uh, my works, I usually put them on Twitter at Rugava98, uh, Facebook, JP Rugava. Um, yeah, that's where most of my works can be got. And also on LinkedIn at Rugava Jumpo. Most of my works are posted there. Um, I'm also accessible on Instagram as Rugava. Yeah, but most of my works, I put them on Facebook and Twitter because I have a wider audience over there. So that's where I would say my works can be got. Yeah. Great, great. All right. So I will add your links to the show notes of this episode and everybody can go and check out the incredible work you're doing and try to catch up on a lot of things about JP and the African narrative. Thank you for coming on the show. And that is it. We'll call it a wrap. See you next time. Take care of yourself. Bye. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.